Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer, and today on The Breakdown, we reflect on the 78th anniversary of Executive Order 9066, which sent 120,000 Americans, mostly of Japanese descent, to internment camps during World War II. That's right. It is a shameful moment in American history. And our guest today has in many ways been shaped by what happened back then. His parents and grandparents were all interned. And he actually wrote his master's thesis on much of that history. He's also the first openly gay Asian American member of Congress. And of course, there's just a thing or two happening politically right now in D.C. So we'll get to lots of other current issues as well with Riverside Congressman Mark DeCano. Welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. Well, we wanted to start, uh, Friday is actually the uh, 78th anniversary of, of that executive order. And um, reading up on you, Congressman, we, we noted that I think both your parents were interned as children. Um, your paternal grandparents lost the greenhouse business they had built. Talk about how this history kind of figured into your life as you were growing up. Well, you know, um, my, grand, my, grand, my immigrant grandfather couldn't speak very much English. Uh, his wife, who was many years younger, uh, suffered a mental breakdown, and she really couldn't carry a conversation that was very intelligible uh, or irrational. So I wasn't able to really converse with them about it. My mother and father were open about it. They kept books about a couple of books on internment uh, that I would leaf through and look at the pictures as I was a little boy. Uh, but when I was 10 years old, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, my only immigrant grandfather, took me to where he entered the country, which was Washington State. He entered through Tacoma around 1916, as probably, I think he was probably 18 years old, no no older than 18 years old. Um, And he showed me the place where my grandmother, my American-born grandmother, owned about five acres of land. He couldn't own property as a as an immigrant from Japan. There were, there were alien land laws here in California. I'm pretty sure they were land laws in Washington State as well. Um, and uh, 
I was a 10-year-old. I didn't quite understand everything. And he couldn't tell me everything, but we were there with other relatives in downtown Bellevue, Washington. And Bellevue, as you know, is is one of the tech centers. Uh, it's not too far from Redmond, and it is no longer uh, the agricultural backwater that it was in the 1930s. Uh, they had five acres of land, five greenhouses, and they used to grow produce for the Pikes Market. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. What, what brought them down to Riverside? Well, um, internment, basically. I mean, they uh, it, internment sort of rejumbled uh, where people lived. Um, my grandfather, I mean, let me tell you, finish the story. I mean, the, the greenhouses they owned, uh, you know, uh, they, they worked the property. Uh, but on the property uh, then was a was a was a uh, Holiday Inn, uh, a Holiday Inn, and they had lost the property because they couldn't work it during the war while they were interned during the, their, their internment, uh, and they couldn't pay the taxes, so they they lost it because of non-payment of taxes, and um, uh, my grandfather thought it really important to show me that property. Uh, and I, I didn't really kind of put it all together until I was much older. Uh, approaching the age that he was when he got out of the internment camps, and had to start all over again, and uh, in his fifties. Uh, and uh, when you think that he had five acres of property that a hotel was on by the time I was ten years old, hmm. and that when he took me there, he was a gardener, as were many people of his generation. Uh, immigrant Japanese that became gardeners after that. Um, he was sending me a strong message. He wanted to let me, wanted me to connect with that history and what he had lost. And what you lost. I mean, that would have been intergenerational wealth that your family would have built. Thank you very much. Intergenerational wealth. And um, I think that story is important for, for people to hear, not just in terms of what happened to Japanese Americans and the great injustice, but to think about what it meant for African-Americans and Latinos who weren't able to access the GI Bill after World War II, who are still alive, mm -hmm. uh, who weren't able to use uh, the Veterans Home Loan uh, because they couldn't buy property using the Veterans Home Loan because the banks uh, that had to approve those loans had bankers that uh, weren't going to approve those loans and they couldn't buy in certain neighborhoods. And you think about that intergenerational wealth that constitutes the structural racism and equality that we live with today, that story to me is like really emblematic of just what happened to Japanese Americans multiplied many times 110, 120,000 people who were in those camps. Yeah. Uh, one, one could easily imagine being bitter, being angry at the country. Um, how, did, how do you think it affected them and, and how, did, how did it affect you as a young man growing up knowing that was your family history? Well, um, also part of my history uh, were my grandmother's brothers. She, she had several brothers from a large family. They were American-born. My grandmother, my grandmother Kazue Takahashi Takano, uh, had two brothers that served uh, in the 442nd Infantry Battalion in World War II in Italy and in Germany uh, and France. Uh, and uh, one of those brothers, uh, Monso, Uncle Monso, or Uncle Mon, uh, perished in Massa, Italy at the age of 23. Uh, I think about what he must have felt like 
uh, in battle, probably cannon fodder in many cases, ordered in to do many, many thankless tasks as a, as a combat soldier uh, in, the, in the army under Patton. Uh, so I don't to register about bitterness. Uh, you you fight for a country that how can you fight for something you don't believe in? Uh, you had a generation of of second born Americans uh, who like my uncle Monso or my uncle Nobur or Uncle Nobi uh, who who fought uh, in World War II and then a third uncle who got sent over, but wasn't, hadn't really was, was much younger, but he was the uncle that gets back to Seattle and sees the, uh, the notice, the tax lien in the paper and oh. rushes to try and get uh, a payment uh, in time and it doesn't work out. Uh, and he was in uniform. Wow. So the, the ironies, the ironies abound. <clears throat> uh, so um, I, I think about that. I mean, I, I, I think about, uh, my first months in Congress in 2013, I'd been sworn in after I was elected in 2012, before General, but then Secretary of the VA Shinseki, uh, who explained to one of my colleagues the meaning of an oil painting that he kept in his office of the 442nd, a famous or a very notable battle called the Battle of the Lost Battalion. The hmm. uh, 442nd was ordered in to save a group of Texas National Guard that had been stuck behind enemy lines uh, for more than for 10 days or so at great cost, great casualties. So these short little Japanese Americans rescuing these tall Texans uh, <laughs> and uh, explained that to, to me and my colleague. And I knew the story. Yeah. Uh, not all my colleagues know this story. Who, who would know all these little stories of World, World War II? Um, but uh, I was in, I was, moved and I was in tears and barely able to uh, kind of keep my composure. And yeah. he looked at me and he said, you congressman would not be here today were it not for the valor and courage and bravery and the sacrifice. My voice is even cracking now talking about yeah. uh, those men. And so, um, so you asked me, how do we rise above bitterness and all? I mean, I, I think, we have of that same generation a group of, of extraordinary men who fought for the country. At some level, you have to still believe in the promise of this country to be able to do that. Yeah. This is true of African Americans who fought in segregated fighting units and came back to a country that still didn't accept them. You write by that, and then and I, I will continue. I'm going to be doing a look back as chairman of the committee, chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee, on these two programs. We're going to get to that work. Wait, wait, wait. Stop, okay. stop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that was so powerful and I think does show the, just the, God, the duality of so much of this. Um, we do have to take a short break. When okay. we come back, right. we'll keep talking with Congressman Mark Ticano. Okay. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are talking to Congressman Mark Takano of Riverside. Um, you know, Congressman, we've been talking a lot, obviously, about your family history. Um, I want to drill down a little on your personal history and, and, and your childhood. I know um, reading up on you, you talk about really being interested in politics from a young age. Um, and you come from a family of Republicans, I believe, even though you are now a Democrat in Congress. So talk to us no. about how, how did that spark start and and what was um the conversations around your household like around politics well you know my my parents were never hard right republicans um uh i mean my father grew up in riverside my mother grew up in the coachella valley a farmer's daughter like five five i think she's got five sisters maybe six daughters um maybe it's five i can't remember how many (laughs) sisters she has but you know, I remember going to my grandfather, my uh, my maternal grandfather's home in the desert uh, and seeing a picture. Of, uh, my He had a picture of Richard Nixon uh, mm. on the wall and um, he had a he had a shotgun that he, you know, he, that he uh, killed, you know, varmints with uh, on his 80 acres. Um, he actually mellowed into somebody who admired you know, Bill Clinton. Oh. Uh, before he died. And so um, uh, it's a longer discussion about the republicanism of my family. Uh, You're not alone, by the way. We've had several Democrats on uh, just recently, the mayor of Long Beach, uh, Mayor Garcia, whose family, they were all Reagan Republicans, you know. And he was in the college Republicans, you know. Well, um, I went to college. I was still kind of with a Republican identity. Uh, I think what tore at me was knowing that I was gay uh, and uh, it, I struggled into uh, through that through the 20s. I, I came of age during the 80s, right? And um, uh, the, the AIDS epidemic uh, turned public discourse uh, in such a way that I questioned whether or not a gay person like me uh, could succeed in politics. I made the conclusion that um, the Republican Party was too hard a place to be for a gay person. And also, um, I was also paying attention to Central America at the time. I mean, I, I had four years of college at an East Coast college, an elitist college, I mean, Harvard. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I saw what was going on in Central America uh, and didn't like what I saw and the, the, the partisan divide over it. And uh, that, that sort of militarism was not something that... Um, also, I could live with. And so I would say those two things uh, were beginning to steer me toward 
uh, being a Democrat. Well, I want to ask you about the coming out part, because uh, you ran for Congress unsuccessfully in 1992 and 94. I didn't know that, actually, until we started doing a little research on you. Yeah, you lost, and then you came back. I'm really old. (laughs) (laughs) We wouldn't say that. We're about the same vintage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But when you ran, we, we read, you know, in, in some of the stories about that campaign in 94, you ran against uh, Congressman, now Congressman Calvert. I think he was a freshman yeah. running for his second term. And, and and somehow in that campaign, I think he outed you or it became known. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I came really close to winning in 92. It surprised everybody. It was kind of a Republican-leaning district. Uh, I, I was actually ahead on election night in 1992 by 1, 2, 3, 4, 1,234 votes. It was overturned um, several days later by by mail-in ballots. Uh, <laughs> fancy that. Uh, Ken Calvert in those days believed in mail-in ballots. And, uh, you know, I don't know if he's part of the movement today among Republicans to, like, sow doubt uh, as to the validity of, of mail-in ballots. But uh, I was in recount for a couple of weeks. Uh, and then I was urged to run again in 1994 because I had come so close. I was this young upstart. Uh, but th- by that point, they were really concerned about me. I, I- I'd sort of shown a-, a-, a political acumen and strength. So they they decided to throw everything at me that they could. How, how did they do it, though? I mean, was yeah, it like how it. overt was it? Well, San Francisco was involved in this because uh, one of them. It members, always is. <laughs> but they never straight out called me gay or homosexual. Uh, they implied it very strongly. Uh, they had a mailer that was um, lavender and pink. Mm. Uh, and on the cover, it asked the question, is Mark Takano going to be a congressman for Riverside? And then you opened uh, the fold up and the question at the top said, it completed the question, or a, a quest, congressman yeah, for San, San Francisco. Francisco. Oh, San Francisco values. And then... On the back, it said, supports the radical homosexual agenda of the human rights campaign. Not so subtle. Were you out out to your family? I was was out to my family. I was not out to the community. And we didn't exactly play it straight, if you know what I mean. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, I said, well, this is just my opponent's way of trying to deflect from the fact that he was in a car with a prostitute trying to run away from the police. Uh, And... uh, we never really answered. Which our, did our, happen. They, they, <laughs> they asked that me happened. the question. So um, what, we learned, what I learned from that campaign was that really partisans are going to excuse whatever sexual, you know, embroglios or indiscretions. They'll, they'll tend to excuse it ideologically. And there was a low, there was just a different turnout in 1984. Sure, it was, and it was, was right after world. Don't Ask, Don't I, Tell. I, and, yeah, I, yeah I, I lost big uh, 17 points hmm. that year. And I thought at first, well, it might have been because I was outed. Uh, by and that was just one of the. There's a lot more colorful stories about being outed. Um, you you were also teaching, right? I mean, and I, and I, was I, I know people. I know people who were gay and teaching and even, you know, more recently than 1994, who were reluctant to come out, especially, I mean, my, one of my friends taught in high school. Um, did, did that have anything to do with your, you know, not wanting to? Um, it? it was it was more of a practical political calculation at the time mm-hmm. about the district uh, and about 
you know, just, you know, what that would mean. And it was just the way we chose at that point to, to play it. Uh, and we, and we, so I didn't, I didn't outright deny it. Uh, I just sort of didn't answer the question and, um, flash forward, flash, flash forward, uh, 17 years in 2012, uh, I was trying very hard to get people to pay attention to the fact that I was a gay candidate. Uh, right. And most of the news stories were about what was it like then versus now. Uh, and we actually had one incident where uh, one of the faith community leaders who was on my side, who didn't know that I was gay, was like, they're sending out terrible things about Mark. Uh, and it happened to be, I think, the Gay and Lesbian Victory Fund sort of saying they're inviting. Uh, so it wasn't and it wasn't a quote unquote uh, hostile uh, notice that I was gay it was a, it was a kind of supportive thing that I was gay. Yeah. The and, world has um, changed in that time quite a bit. It, it changed quite a bit. And, um, but you know what, you know, the first open the gay person to represent the state of California in the United States Congress is not from San Francisco, but from Riverside. Right? <laughs> so, um, how emphasis cool on uh, emphasis on openly because there open. have certainly been others that were not open. Well, uh, every, every year, every year that I've been in Congress, every, every side, every every two years, I've been able to say, "Hey, we've just elected the gayest Congress in history." <laughs> then there's a pause, and I say, "Well, that we know of, right?" Yeah. So, yeah. That, yeah, exactly. uh, so, do you and Representative Calvert talk? Are you friendly? No, we actually, we actually have together worked on a massive uh, land preservation. Uh, we've put a lot of land. Uh, into into conservation uh, to make it more certain about where development can go. We've 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 have a multi species habitat plan, uh, and uh, it was a bipartisan effort. Did you ever talk it. about his outing you? Um, he's talked about it to uh, a few colleagues. I, I've had some colleagues that have been on some trips with him, uh, long trips like uh, you know uh, congressional delegation trips. Um, Steve Israel, uh, who used to be the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, came back and he says, I just was on a long trip with, uh, you know, your neighbor, Mr. <laughs> Calvert. And he got that little glint in his eye. He says, I, I never knew. <laughs> you know, I never. And, and actually, to, I, when I told the story just eight years ago to the caucus, uh, people people don't know everybody, every member's history 20 years back that I ran uh, as a you outed uh, him and, and you outed him too, I guess. <laughs> uh, we did, we did. It's, it's not, it's, it's not a happy story. He likes to tell a lot. Yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos. You are Scott Schaefer. Today we are talking to Riverside Congressman Mark Takano. Um, so let's let's come forward into the present. You chair the House Veterans Committee. Um, we talked earlier that you had veterans in your family. I know that a lot came up under Trump, racism at the VA, um, <laughs> veteran suicide is such a huge issue. What are you looking to tackle now that, you know, we have a Biden administration and, and at least for now, Democrats are in charge of both houses? Well, you know, in conversation and consultation with the veteran service organizations, there, across the board, the next big thing is toxic, toxic exposure. Uh, whether we're talking the unfinished business of exposure to Agent Orange uh, at military bases, uh, but the, uh, of the current generation of veterans, 
uh, the post-Iraq, uh, Afghanistan generation of veterans, uh, they're all concerned about the, uh, the burn pits uh, that they've been exposed to uh, and uh, the, the illnesses that they believe are connected to that exposure. So um, we're going to take that on. Um, it's going to be very expensive. Um, but I believe uh, that taking care of our veterans who have been exposed to um, toxic substances, uh, whether it's Agent Orange, dioxin is the other word for it, or uh, burn pits, you know, they, they have to stand up these, these bases uh, out of nothing. And uh, to dispose of waste, they just built these pits, you know, pour whatever yeah. fuel on them and light them on fire and uh, who knows, yeah. who knows what, uh, but it's not just burn pits. It's also, I mean, I've been to Afghanistan a couple of times and uh, during the winter uh, they, they burn every manner of, of substance to kind of keep warm. And the air is so thick with particulates when you walk outside and you think about our military personnel billeting there for, an entire winter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. We in California know how horrible yeah. that is right yes, now. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I want to ask you a question about some of the recent attacks on Asian Americans, especially elderly folks. We've seen a lot of that in the Bay Area in recent weeks. And I'm wondering, you know, what are you hearing, even from your own family, but from your constituents about what, what's been happening? Well, look, I, my, I've not heard so much from my constituents. Um, we haven't, I have not been made aware of incidences that have occurred in my district. Um, I represent a constituency that's maybe four to five percent uh, Asian, um, uh, but I've certainly heard about what's happened in Oakland um, and uh, the rising, the reports of rising incidences of violence, or um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, offensive remarks that are made toward Asians. And I think there's a definite feeling among Asian Americans uh, and Asian immigrants in this country that uh, that the COVID-19 pandemic and the mass blame and the scapegoating uh, that has that has accrued toward China uh, has been generalized to all Asian Americans here in the United States. And so um, uh, we've seen us we've seen an uptick in the last couple of, of weeks, the last month or so. Um, and we just have to realize we're just a month out of, of the Trump presidency, but, the, but there are lingering effects of that very, very irresponsible leadership. Uh, what, what the president of the United States says um, can empower. Uh, it can also kind of, uh, kind of mollify or, or, or soften. Uh, and people, and when when Trump when Trump as the as the president of the United States would say things like Kung flu, and China virus, uh, or Wuhan virus, and tie a disease that comes from nature, uh, and and make it really sinister, uh, and tie it to uh, an Asian, uh, to tie to China specifically. It affects me as a Japanese immigrant, a Japanese as a Japanese uh, American. Um, because uh, what happens in America very often is that many, many Americans will just sort of not see a distinction between, especially, and it's happening to East Asians, not all Asians, but East Asians in particular seem to be the brunt of this uptick in, in violence. And we've seen this happen before. We've seen it happen in the 80s when 
the sentiment wasn't anti-Chinese, it was anti-Japanese because of uh, the auto industry suffering, um, at, you know, because of uh, the rise of Japanese auto companies and white auto workers uh, in Detroit taking it out on a guy named Vincent Chin, who was Chinese-American. Mm. But they said, you know, you they used some epithets against him, some cuss words, and they killed him. And they and and the community there didn't really hold them accountable. They got very light sentences. Uh, this was the beginning of like a, 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 an Asian American consciousness in the country was seeing how really no justice was brought forward for the family of Vincent Chin, and 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 how Vincent Chin was a Chinese American, but yet didn't punished matter. because yeah. they thought he was Japanese. So look. It doesn't. It, this sort of irresponsible use of language and, polit- and irresponsible political leadership leadership uh, results in these sort of things. Uh, results in the kind of uh, violence we're seeing. So, um, if you I mean, may, I, if I may, if I may, I want to just return back to another intention as chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee, um, and it relates to racism. It relates to. Um, the earlier story I was telling about my family um, and uh, the intergenerational wealth that wasn't built. I, I really think we need to do a look back at the VA uh, at programs like the Veterans Loan, Veteran Home Loans, the GI Bill, uh, and th- those were initiated after World War II, and how uh, minorities, especially Black Americans, weren't able to take advantage of those programs and build intergenerational wealth. And I, I had a conversation with Vice President Kamala Harris uh, at the White House, and I brought this up with President Biden. Uh, and she said, you know, uh, there's some studies that show that today's inequality and wealth uh, among the races has a, may have a lot to do uh, with these two programs uh, and the unequal way in which people access that, those programs. And I also hope to take a look at extremism yeah. uh, among veterans today. Uh, and so um, it's important to connect yeah, all those dots. Yeah. Connect all these, thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> We're going to have to leave it there. We wanted to talk to you about your uh, Takano teriyaki recipe, but we'll have to, to do that another time. Uh, loose lips sink ships. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. That's for my mom. Okay. <laughs> Congressman Mark Takano of Riverside, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer today, Jim Bennett. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin, Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.